Hi, it's Michael Sunoff with Michael Sunoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called Autism, Genes, Fingerprints, and Caffeine, Surprising Things You Should Know About Your Health. If you thought caffeine was bad for you, think again. According to Dr. Roizen, best-selling author and co-creator of RealAge.com, you should drink at least six cups of coffee a day to reduce brain aging. In fact, he says there are 151 things you can do to change your rate of aging, and in this audio, you'll hear some of them. Dr. Michael Roizen also talks frankly about a number of health issues concerning people today, including the rise of autism rates and its possible link to both the environment and genetics. You'll also learn how to stay younger than your years. Dr. Roizen is in his 60s, but his real age is 44. Exactly what scientists know about autism. Is it really linked to childhood vaccines and just how safe are the shots anyway? You'll learn ways we can influence the genes we have and turn on a gene that will prevent colon, prostate, and breast cancer just by eating four servings of broccoli a week. You'll learn how a mother-to-be's lifestyle can affect her baby's behavior after he's born and ways to stay healthy during pregnancy. You'll learn all about the power that food has over our health and simple ways to live better and healthier. You'll learn exactly how fingerprints are formed and what makes each one unique. As a physician of internal medicine and co-author of the U series of health books, Dr. Roizen knows his stuff when it comes to many different health issues and he shares a lot of that information in this quick interview. I hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Chris Costello, and I've teamed up with Michael Senoff to bring you the world's best health-related interviews. My dad used to tell me that making money is great, but being able to spend it in a healthy and vibrant manner makes your financial success that much sweeter. So if you know anyone struggling with their weight, with cancer, diabetes, ADHD, autism, heart disease, or other health issues, send them over to Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. I'm Chris Costello, and today we're talking with one of America's best-loved doctors, Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Roizen, thank you so much for joining us today. Chris, it's always a privilege, and you're from the best-loved area of the country, so I think all of us would love to be out there in Santa Barbara with you. Now, Dr. Roizen, you've written just the wildly popular series along with Dr. Oz, the You series, You on Staying Healthy and Young, and your newest, You on Having a Baby. But there's a subject that I know a lot of our listeners are interested in and wondering about, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit to what is going on with these really high rates of autism and learning disabilities in American children these days. Well, there's no doubt it has increased over the last 50 years. There's also no doubt that both environment and genetics play a role. And in the genetics, for example, if two engineers marry each other, instead of a 1 in 150 or 160 rate of autism, there's almost a 1 in 15 or 16. So it's a much higher predominance. And obviously, the engineers reflect a genetic personality trait that may have more genetic basis. On the other hand, there also is an increase in some polluted areas where the farmers had specific wells they drew from. So it appears that there's both an environmental 
and a genetic component. And the environmental may relate to something we're doing to our environment on a more widespread basis, whether it is pesticides or whether it is the way we're, if you will, growing things, etc. There are a whole raft of things that are being investigated. In fact, some of the people at UC Davis are doing what we would call some of the most important environmental work in the area, trying to find out what it is. What we know that it isn't from pretty darn good studies now is we know it isn't the mercury content of vaccines or at least any one vaccination. Yeah, well, I want to ask you about that because I know there's so much anecdotal information from parents that they see their kids get a vaccination and then they just freak out because that day or that night, you know, the child has a fever. There's lots of stories out there, which I'm sure you've seen too. When you get a fever or stressed reaction, you bring out certain diseases that would have been brought out anyway that are of the mitochondria. And so in the specific examples where it's been examined, where it's been, quote, triggered within a very short time frame after vaccination, it almost invariably, in fact, I think it has been invariable, there is a genetic disease that is known to be triggered by a inflammatory response, and that disease just hasn't been evident until then. So there are known triggers. Those things would have come out were they to have gotten, if you will, a fever in the future. So that gives us some important messages. In the You Having a Baby book, Mehmet and I did a series on what vaccination your child should get and why, and looking at the numbers needed to treat so any parent could make their own decisions. But we did this in a way that both the pro and the anti-vaccine group have yelled at us strongly. We actually had 34 different consultants, people very much on both sides of the issue, as well as people representing the medical establishment, people representing the anti-vaccine group and tried to mold a conclusion from it. It was by far the longest and hardest thing we've had to write because literally virtually every one of the people we talked to after we had come to the conclusion that we had, both sides were annoyed at us for not going with the traditional view and not going with uh, all vaccines are bad. Clearly, the vaccines have saved a lot of people, and clearly there are better ways to give them. And the other point is we don't want the anti-vaccine group to stop it because they have forced a great deal of improvement in vaccine safety. Are there ways to make the vaccines safer? I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind for me is why can't they take some of these additives out? Literally on childhood vaccines, they've taken the mercury out of all but one or two of them. And the amount of mercury you get in the typical flu shot now that is not individual dose, and you can get individual dose for kids, but the kind that is in the one that us adults get is the amount you get in eating the average four-ounce piece of tuna. So it's not very much mercury, and it's in a much more benign form than, in fact, the fish tuna is in. So one is we don't think that's the problem. There are much more what we would call efficient ways of making the vaccine so they can get done less expensively, perhaps, and more efficiently. The problem is they haven't been as tried and tested as the current one. So there will be, as we've pushed on vaccine manufacturers, they are now much safer than they were, for example, in 1980 
they aren't totally safe. But let me give you an example. For the flu shot, we know that at most it causes one in three million serious adverse events. Yet at the same time, we know it prevents one in 36,000 people at a minimum who get vaccinated from dying. So the benefit to risk ratio is at least 100 and maybe 10,000 to 1. So we've gotten them to the point where from a serious adverse effect, there is a substantial benefit to risk standpoint. On the other hand, the way they're given in multiples when you're newborn, et cetera, there are ways, and that's what we go into in that toolbox in the back of the book, of schedules and ways of giving them, which we think will be much safer and have the theoretical benefit of being much safer. There isn't enough data because they haven't been tested in that way. Well, and that must have been fascinating to be in the middle of those groups, as you mentioned. Well, we often did this on radio. Mehmet and I host Oprah Radio, a medical program for an hour a day. And so we would often have the people on the radio with us while we were hashing this out. And we got some pretty violent arguments in the studio. We were really surprised with the, how do I call it, the heat of the situation rather than actually the substance of it. It's gotten polarized, much like politics, where it doesn't need to be. And that's why we think we came to a rational and non-polarized idea. When we got through and we said that both sides were mad at us, Newt Gingrich, who we were interviewing on another topic one day, said, well, you got both sides mad at you. You must be right at the right point. And so you got these recommendations in you having a baby. Right. But we put things we couldn't get into the main text that we thought only some people would read. We put in appendices or what we call toolboxes at the end. And so one of them is, for example, Pop's Pregnancy Recipes. It's a tool for dad to make recipes for mom. They're easy. You make them in under 30 minutes, start to finish, even a doc. Even Mehmet and I can make them, which is how we tested that we could make them. We both had to make them. And we put them there in the back. So there's fertility issues. There is a plan on, if you will, all the things Pop should do on the way to the hospital or what to plan for. There's an exercise tool. There's how to choose your OBGYN and how to choose your pediatrician. And there's a guideline for medications and toxins. Well, obviously, not everyone is going to read that as they will read about how to eat during pregnancy or what vitamins to take or why certain things are good and certain things are bad or about epigenetics, which is how you lay genetics of the child on top of the genetics you and your partner have given the child. There are a lot of things in there, but the toolboxes we thought only some people would read. For more interviews with the world's top health and medical experts, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. Right, and Dr. Royson, that was one of the things we wanted to talk with you about. I mean, the You series is wildly popular, obviously. We know that You Staying Young was, I think, what the number three best-selling book in the world, and I think part of that is it's so reader-friendly. And one of the things I just loved in You Having a Baby was your analogy with the whole DNA and the genes to each partner bringing their favorite recipes and that kind of explaining epigenetics in that way. Because for a lot of people, that's a big word. Right, epigenetics is only epi on top of. Genetic. And just imagine, and I'll use the analogy we use in the book, that you bring all your family recipes, and let's just say you're a woman and he brings all his family recipes. So you've got this stack of recipes. Well, you wouldn't know which ones were useful unless you put post it notes on top of them. And that post it note helps you pull that out faster 
and use it. Well, that's just what epigenetics is. So it doesn't change the underlying gene. It just changes whether you like to use it or, in fact, you might put things with a gray post-it note on them when you don't want to use it. And that's exactly what the body does. For example, if you undernourish yourself during pregnancy, let's say you're bulimic and you undernourish yourself, the child thinks he's going to be in a starvation mode and learns to slow down his metabolic rate. Well, the way he does that is by posting a note on top of a gene that might have normal metabolism and say, go into slow mode. And so it is, or don't be red, if you will, that protein that ups metabolism. Don't get this red, skip that one. So you don't produce that protein, which increases your activity. So you've got slower activity or slower metabolic rate. So what happens if the child then gets born and eats normally? He gains weight too fast. So epigenetics, is this one of the really exciting things in medicine right now? Because we're hearing a lot about this and just the potential to, you know, turn on and turn off different genes through lifestyle changes. What do you see with all of that happening? Well, we'll get to know much more in five to seven years when we have really inexpensive tests to measure your genome. So we'll know, do you have the GSTM1 gene? And if you do, does broccoli turn it on in you as it does in the vast majority of people? Why am I mentioning that? Well, that's just one of whatever it is, 26,000 genes you might have. And if you've got the active form of that, you can produce a protein that causes breast and colon and prostate cancers to commit suicide. And we know it's pretty easy to turn it on. Most people eat four servings of broccoli a week. That's only four handfuls, and it stays on for about a month. So it's pretty easy to turn that gene on and, in fact, get rid of breast, colon, and prostate cancer cell growth, get most of those cells to commit suicide by doing that. So there are pretty easy ways that we will know how to influence the genes we have. Right now, we know only a few, such as the GSTM1 gene and the RAS family of genes, which promote colon, breast, and prostate cancer. We know that saturated fat and sugar turn those genes on and that by avoiding those foods, you can reduce those promoter genes that promote colon, breast, and prostate cancer. And is this a fairly new idea in medicine, this idea of food having such power for health? Well, it's really been around, if you look, there were statements, you are what you eat, very long time ago. But the fact that they influence individual genes is really about a eight or nine-year-old idea And the development of it, obviously, it's still going on. We don't know all the genes and all the foods that influence them specifically, but it is pretty new and exciting, and it's one of the most exciting things to come out of the Genome Project. You're listening to Wellness Talk Radio. I'm Chris Costello, and we're talking with Dr. Michael Roizen. So, Dr. Roizen, what's your website so our listeners can find out what you're up to? Well, we really use two websites. The first is realage.com, R-E-A-L-A-G-E.com. And the second is, if you want to follow the Dr. Oz Show, which does a lot of the science of this in a fun and playful way, it's Dr. Oz, D-O-C-T-O-R-O-Z.com. Now, the real age you mentioned, I noticed you're in your 60s and your real age is what? Well, I'm 64 and my real age is about a little over 44. Wow. Very impressive. Now, what do you do to do that? How do you get that well, age? On real age, there are 151 things you can do that change your rate of aging. Everything from simple stuff like flossing your teeth. And why does that work? Because it changes the rate of inflammation in arteries to, in fact, 
doing things that are more unusual, such as making sure you get six or more cups of coffee a day or having the right amount of vitamin D level, or if you will, as I said, having four servings of broccoli or six walnuts twice a day. And the reasons for those and what are alternatives So if you can't take fish oil, there is a vegetarian alternative that is, in fact, more effective because it's where the fish get the algae from, DHA. So it's where the fish get the omega-3 from, which is algae, and that produces DHA. So there are a lot of neat things on there to help people stay and get healthy. Did you say I get to have six cups or I don't get to have six cups? The more you have, the better. Six cups is really the trigger point at which you really get a lot of the benefit in reducing brain aging. Really? That's right. That's amazing. I thought you had to cut out caffeine. No, we want you, in fact, from a standpoint of health, there are four side effects of caffeine. Migraine, headache, heart arrhythmias, gastric upset, and anxiety. If you don't have one of those, then all the others, that is the other choices, the more caffeine you have, the younger you are. Interesting. Okay. So back to you having a baby. We talked about epigenetics and this powerful, powerful idea that you can actually change how the genes are expressed. What are some of the things that new moms need to do during their pregnancy to really have the optimal experience for mom and baby? Well, the first is to understand that it is a majestic and wonderful experience. And in the vast majority of cases, everything turns out just normal. So the most important thing is to relax, Yes, get knowledge. Yes, form a buddy group and bond with other moms-to-be or with people who already have children so you can get their wisdom and expertise, but to realize this is going to be just fine because stress is the worst thing in the world. The second thing is to plan your pregnancy, if you will, since 50% are unplanned. Anytime you think you might be pregnant, which is everybody, in fact, who's from age 12 on to menopause, probably should be taking prenatal vitamins every day because you need them literally three months before you get pregnant. So relax, start the prenatal vitamins as soon as you can, and if you're not pregnant yet, start them three months beforehand or far in advance and keep taking them through breastfeeding, etc., until you reach menopause. The third is to understand you're not eating for two, you're eating for 1.1, and There is a value in limiting your calorie intake, so you only gain roughly 24 pounds. And secondly, there's a value in making those calories as high quality as you can because of the epigenetic effect of foods on your child. And if you will, one corollary of that is if you eat a lot of junk food during your pregnancy, your child will begin to like junk food and will have that ensconced in his genes by that epigenetic pathway. On the other hand, if you eat just healthy food, the child will like healthy food much more. If you eat burritos that are cheese-laden, he'll like burritos that are cheese-laden. It's a very interesting phenomenon on how we adjust to senses. How about caffeine during pregnancy? You're listening to an interview on Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. That's one of the few times in life you absolutely want to cut caffeine out because caffeine does increase miscarriage rate. Okay, so that's a strong reason not to. Absolutely, and it occurs at about 200 milligrams a day. Now, the interesting thing is one cup of coffee may be between 50 and 150, so you shouldn't have any. But even decaffeinated coffees, when we tested them, 
they have 20 to 30 milligrams of caffeine. So it's not that you can substitute decaffeinated coffee for regular coffee. When you're pregnant, you probably should cut it all out totally. Also, Dr. Roizen, what do you think about the whole concept of home births versus hospital births? I think that this is an individual choice. And if you are otherwise healthy, meaning there's nothing unusual with your pregnancy and things are going fine and you don't have any unusual genetic traits or anything else, there's every reason to have a home birth, in fact, if you want one and if you're close enough to a hospital. What do we mean by that is because emergencies occur, even in rush hours, you want to be within 30 minutes of the hospital. And secondly, you want to pick then a practitioner who's willing to come and do a home birth and will work with someone else who is at a hospital in case an emergency occurs. But home birth, obviously, they're low risk. That is, get who selects for it, and that's a very good thing. And we're out in California, so we have to ask you that, right? It's every place, and it's a great thing. Both Mehmet and I, even though we're both traditional physicians, think it's a wonderful thing if you can do a home birth. Lisa Oz tried home birth, and that is Mehmet's wife, and ended up with a stalled labor. So she ended up not having home birth any of the time. And I've participated in probably because I helped do OB anesthesia at UC San Francisco when I was in my younger days and at the University of Chicago. I participated in probably over 5,000 hospital deliveries. Yeah, we both love home birth. My one regret is I didn't do a home birth, but, you know, can't do everything, right? And not only that, that's right. I mean, there are some reasons why some of us can't do them. So, Dr. Roizen, you know, if there are a few really just key things that you'd like women and men to know about you having a baby, what would those things be? Well, I think the way we did it and the way we wrote about it was the goal is to make sure mom knows that is you know all about what's going to happen at each stage of the game. We tried to do it in the least stressful way possible, that is to make sure that everyone knew what was going to happen, what options you had at each stage. So during delivery, for example, you get to decide what type of pain relief you want and you can plan for it. But at each stage, we wanted to make sure that you knew that there were some things that you couldn't control and to understand that and to work with them in advance. Wonderful. And Dr. Roizen, for our listeners that would like to find out more about what you're doing, can you mention those websites again, please? Sure. It is realage.com and DrOz, D-O-C-T-O-R-O-Z.com. All right. And what's coming up next for you? Mem and I have a fairly active schedule. I think the next book is You, the Smart Parent. We obviously relied on our wives a great deal for parenting our own children, and this is actually a fun thing as well, meaning the book is a lot of fun. Ah, and what kind of things will that go into? What it goes into is how you should frame what attitude, what things you should do for brain development and for muscular development, and how to get, if you will, the best parent out of yourselves and out of your partner you can and what we know about what parenting does for child development. The team that worked together on you having a baby had delivered a little over, I think it was around 12,000 children at the time we ended up, the book being published. This book, we've only had, I think it is, 18 children among us in the team, but we have two pediatricians, including my wife who's a developmental pediatrician, 
helping us a great deal in the book. And that's a logical progression after having a baby. It is good to know what to do with it afterwards, <laughs> isn't it? We aren't through with it, but we always learn so much. So in writing You and a Baby, we learned, for example, why fingerprints are so unique and so different and how they get formed. I don't know if you know that when you're in utero, you hold on to the side of the amniotic fluid cavity, the womb, and you push against your own placenta. And that pushing, the ridges on the placenta, indent your fingers, and they're what give you the swirls. So there are a whole bunch of interesting things that Mehmet and I never knew that we can make the books more interesting with. That's interesting, because we were just talking with Dr. Diodamo, and he mentioned, I don't know if you've heard this one, same thing with the fingerprints, where you can actually tell if you've had a good time in utero, if they're symmetrical, if they match. Have you heard that one? I don't know that. That means both arms are up. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating, so I can't wait. I've got to go get a fingerprint thing. And <laughs> Well, Dr. Roizen, we want to thank you so much for joining us on Wellness Talk Radio. And why don't you mention that website one more time so people can find you. Of course, they can Google your name, too. you got the third best-selling book in the world. I imagine they can find you pretty easily. It's realage, R-E-A-L-A-G-E.com and Dr. Oz, D-O-C-T-O-R-O-Z dot com. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That's the end of our interview, and I hope you've enjoyed it. For more great health-related interviews, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com.